You're listening to Campus Review Radio. Thank you very much, uh, Caroline, for this uh, generous introduction. I was thinking, gee, I'm probably the only non-PhD in this room. <laughs> so, uh, but thank you especially for inviting us to Australia and giving us this experience of seeing Sydney, Newcastle, and, uh, Canberra, and, and tomorrow uh, uh, Melbourne, um, which has been uh, uh, quite uh, fascinating. Uh, we had you know, always thought that this book would get quite a bit of attention in the United States, Canada, Europe, and it did, China even, but never <laughs> that we would find ourselves here in Australia, so that is absolutely great. Um, as you said, um, this book is upbeat. Let me just put it bluntly. I think the diagnosis, and as you know, doctors should start with a good diagnosis, and so should economists. Um, the diagnosis by President Trump, or for that matter, Bernie Sanders, or all other populists, is flat wrong. Of course, they are right in pointing to the fact that there's a whole group that has been left behind, and that's a real problem. But the prescription of seeking protection through protectionism, the idea that innovation has run out of steam, the idea that we're no longer competitive, we believe is flat wrong. And it comes because they look through the rear view mirror. And indeed, if you look there, what you see is employment in manufacturing industries in the United States went way down, lost seven million jobs. And of course, that is tough. It's not limited to the United States. This happened in all of the advanced economies. It happened here in Australia. Now, fortunately, we're seeing a bit of a reversal in that. But that has been the problem. That brought Trump to power. Now, why was this? It's very easy to scapegoat emerging markets and the competition. But that's only one of the reasons. In fact, the fact that we had that competition, I believe, didn't inoculate us, but helped to strengthen the immune system for the next challenge to come, which has always been a big problem, and one reason for the loss of all those jobs. And that's why I say the diagnosis is wrong, and that is automation. Automation, you could say, is the new China. And of course, there was the devastating effect of the 2008 crisis. So, as Caroline said, I spent my life in emerging markets. So what you're gonna hear, I would be the least likely messenger. But what did I hear when I went on my last trips to Asia? And I have to tell you, I at least dropped off my chair. I heard the people I knew very well complain, complain about American and other advanced economy competition. Now, of course, wages are going up in places like China. That's one reason. Energy has changed the picture. But the real reason was that they couldn't keep up with research and development. So Fred and I went around the world, particularly the United States and Europe, 
went to dozens of places where things are being invented. And we came to the conclusion that the North American and European economies are not on the decline. No, they are in fact regaining competitiveness. There is a brand new paradigm. What is that? Well, the era of cheap is over. We tried for decades, literally two decades, we tried to compete on making things as cheap as possible. That's not the solution. The era of smart has begun. We have to compete on making things as smart as possible. Then we play to our strengths rather than our weaknesses. It's smart innovation, not cheap labor, that is today's competitive edge. Manufacturing is not, as Trump would like you to believe, coming back. No. It is being reinvented. That is the key. Now, this rests on two pillars. And as Caroline said, there was a lot of discussion about this yesterday, which was wonderful to hear. The first is what we call sharing brain power between universities, where the center, startups, and yes, these many legacy companies, big and small, and small. It's collaboration, collaboration, collaboration. In fact, I would say, if you don't collaborate, you engage in the same kind of protectionism, but this time, intellectual protectionism. Collaboration is absolutely key. Today's modern innovation is different from the past. It used to be hierarchical, now it's collegial. It used to be IP-oriented, closed, now it is open. It used to be siloed, now it's multidisciplinary. I went to see one of your colleagues, Shirley Ann Jackson, president of the uh, Bensley Polytechnic Institute, and she said to me, nothing is being invented anymore within academic departments. It's all invented between academic departments. It is this multidisciplinary aspect that's very important. Top down uh, used to be in the past. Bottom up now. Lone Ranger now collaborative. And finally, research used to be done in government institutes and corporate research centers. Isolated, IP oriented. Now it's done in vibrant urban innovation districts or precincts, I think as you call them here in uh, uh, Australia. That's why. What's the second pillar? The second pillar is we're in the midst of literally inventing a new branch of the economy. Just as we went from agriculture to manufacturing to services, now there's something new that integrates the old and the new. It starts with old industrial expertise that you can find in places like Nikes. But then, it is new production methods. Where is the newest factory of Adidas? In Germany, not exactly a low-wage economy. Where is the newest car company? In the United States, Tesla. 
made possible by new production methods. Then there's new materials. You all know this. You're in the middle of this. I mean, what we're seeing is an explosion of new materials, new discoveries, particularly in the drug industry, but many different industries. And that is then connected, fused, you could say, with wireless IT and big data analytics through these tiny little chips called sensors. That is the new economy. That is where we are going. The future is all about connecting and connectedness. The self-driving car is not just some figment of the imagination. They're on the road, as some people pointed out yesterday. Now, and they're going to be a reality. They will completely change the way we think about transportation and, by the way, infrastructure. Remote medicine, the wearables, the little uh, 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 watches, the ingestibles even, that are going to monitor your health. It will be a revolution in healthcare. The smart grid, smart agriculture. It's smart that is key, no longer cheap. Now, what we found really intriguing is once we got into this and traveled around and literally met with hundreds of university uh, presidents, with researchers, with startup uh, guys in jeans and with uh, well-dressed corporate executives, what we found was very interesting. And it is, it's not just Silicon Valley. It's not just the two Cambridges. No. This place is taking place in many places that were old rust belts. There was a lot of old expertise there that could be used. Example, Akron, Ohio. Just as new Castle or Ullengong uh, lost uh, the steel industry, they lost the tire industry. Four big tire companies. And then stepped in the president of the university there, Luis Porretta, who basically brought renaissance to the downtown. And he recognized something very important, which was that the jewel in the crown of the tire industry, which was the polymer research, was still there. And that's what they focused on. So today, as your chairman said yesterday, uh, inciting us, is you have a thousand little polymer companies in Akron, Ohio, that have more jobs than the four big tire companies. Portland, Oregon was for a while a rather sleepy town, uh, empty, uh, old factory uh, districts. Now, uh, and here, you have a very different connector. I don't know whether you recognize that picture. Phil Knight had nothing to do um, with this immediately, but he became a connector. Why? He gave 500 million to OHSU, which is the uh, big uh, medical university there. And that allowed them to literally move from the mountain into the city, just as universities like in Newcastle are moving into the city. And that has created new life and a lot of very good research. New transportation. And there you see this bicycle, which I always like being a Dutch boy um, by birth. Is, is, you know, there's a great correlation between bicycle path and innovation. <laughs> so, uh, here we go. Um, there, there you have this, this map here. 
uh, you know, it's Silicon Valley and, and, and Cambridge, but look at this map. It's the industrial heartland. It's all over in this particular case, the US. It's places like Provo in, in Utah. It's Detroit again. It's Pittsburgh again. Uh, <coughs> it's Akron, Ohio. I mean, you can go all over the US. This, there's a burst of innovation, and that is what is the most interesting thing. So let's now focus on how do you become a brain belt after being a rust belt, or in general, how do you become a brain belt? First of all, if you're a rust belt, what you need is a life-threatening challenge, like losing your industry. <laughs> because what that does is it brings people together. And then what you need, and that's critical, because universities are at the center, is a strong research university that is focused on areas where they can be world-class in their research. It is an understanding that today's complex challenges require a multidisciplinary approach. You cannot find the future within academic departments. It is an openness to collaborating, because collaboration is what commercializes Products. And, and just as a quick reminder, yesterday the, the professor from, uh, from uh, Nanyang University showed this chart of the top universities uh, in, in, in ranking. MIT, Stanford, Harvard, Cambridge, etc. Now, these are known for their collaboration. But clearly, there are no slouches when it comes to research. And they are attracting lots of international students. So it benefits everybody, this openness to sharing brain power. You need, very important, someone who is a connector. Someone like a Louis Buenzo. Or it can be a mayor, or whatever, who brings people together. And who has the credibility to drive the vision to make this possible. Absolutely key. And finally, of course, you need an infrastructure. You need to build an infrastructure that is vibrant, but also affordable. Because if it's not affordable, you don't keep the top talent. And finally, you need money. Access to venture and angel capital. That is roughly the combination. Not everything has to be present everywhere, but most of these factors need to be there. Another example, and Fred will talk about this uh, in a minute, is Eindhoven, where you have the old Philips, uh, and now you have spin-offs of Philips that are very important, and uh, not only a very strong technical university that you see here, but a whole new open innovation campus, where literally thousands of researchers are hard at work and that have most of the patents in Holland. So this map in Europe, and by the way, the American map was some 35 different places, over two-thirds of which were rust belts. And here you have the map in Europe, places we visited are Eindhoven and Holland, or Zurich, or Dresden, or Lund in Sweden, or Ulu in, in Finland. All of these places, and there are many more, about 15 or more of them, where all of this is happening. That's really very exciting. Rust belts are transforming themselves 
into brain belts by building on their forgotten strength. They are creating the kinds of smart new products that we desperately need in the 21st century. So to end, let me just say that I don't think innovation has run out of steam. Quite the opposite. We are at the cusp of a whole new wave of enormously important innovation. And Rust Belt in the US, in Europe, and yes, here in Australia, can become brain belts and lead us toward what I think is a much more hopeful future. Thank you.